Tatiana Malkina remembers her mother waking her up early that day. Mother was screaming. I said, get up, get up, get up. You, you know what's going on? I said, Mom, what are you doing at six o'clock? I said, just get up and listen to the radio. It was the summer of 1991, the day after Tatiana's 24th birthday. And the mother and I, we prepared actually a lot of food because the food situation, as you probably remember, wasn't that legendary. The food was for an office party. She was a reporter at an independent newspaper at the time. And I listened to the radio for like a few seconds. Заявление советского руководства. В связи с невозможностью по состоянию здоровья исполнения Горбачевым Михаилом Сергеевичем and uh, I realized that now I have to wake up everyone else, I mean, my colleagues, my editor-in-chief. On that day, the 19th of August, the KGB was attempting to seize political control of the Soviet Union, along with the chiefs of the army and police, and a few hardline communists. They declared a state of emergency. They had the country's leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, under house arrest, claiming he was unable to carry on his duties for health reasons. Tatiana got dressed and headed out. We still took this whole cart of food, which actually then became very handy. And I was even kind of dressed up the way I, I, <laughs> I, planned, I planned for the party. Carrying her bags of party food and wearing a green gingham dress that she had borrowed from her mother, she arrived at the newsroom. I don't think anyone was scared. It was just a pure adrenaline rush. And then we started doing this, whatever, old-fashioned reporting, getting this information from people who actually saw from their windows the tanks and uh, uh, all kinds of stuff. And uh, our photographers started running around the city. The KGB concluded it was the opening of the press that had undermined their power under Gorbachev. Its first decree that day was a ban on the publication of independent newspapers. Echo Moskvi, the country's first free radio station, was also taken off air. And state television had interrupted its programming. It was showing, on a loop, Tchaikovsky's ballet, Swan Lake. That afternoon, Tatiana's office received notice that the leaders of the new Committee on the State of Emergency, as the hardliners called themselves, would be holding a press conference. Tatiana rode the metro a few stops to the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, made her way into the press centre and found a seat towards the front. The room began to fill up. Six ageing men sat behind a long desk, in grey suits, in front of a grey curtain. Far from being triumphant, they looked ashen. Gennady Yanayev, who'd been Gorbachev's vice president, did much of the talking. His hands were shaking, either from nerves or from drink, or both. Then I saw them, and I got so angry. I remember, well, I was just a kid, basically. I looked at them, I said, really? Really, seriously, you guys? You're closing the newspapers, you're sending the tanks. From the third row, Tatiana stood up. This bright young woman in her green summer dress was a striking contrast 
to the drab Soviet man. At that moment, she had the attention of the country and the world. And she did something which made her famous among Russian journalists for decades to come. Скажите, пожалуйста, понимаете ли вы, что сегодня ночью вы совершили государственный переворот? И I ask, do you realize that you committed coup d'état? And you were not scared? No, not for a second. I was mad. I was furious. Instead of having her arrested on the spot, the coup plotters who commanded the KGB and the army attempted to explain themselves to this 24-year-old journalist. It was obvious before I asked the question and definitely after they answered that they are clueless. It was suddenly clear to everyone watching that these Soviet apparatchiks were not really in control at all. Under Gorbachev's reforms, the Soviet Union had been opening up for five years, and this man were not about to stop it. Because their main tool, fear, was fast disappearing. Tatyana's defiance resonated with hundreds of thousands of Russians, who then poured onto the streets, waving Russian flags and building barricades in front of the Russian parliament building. Tatyana's plain statement of truth to power had given them a voice. The country felt united. Having launched the coup in the name of saving the USSR, the KGB brought it down. Three days later, the coup was over. The power of the KGB vanished, at least for a while. On a morning more than 30 years later, Tatiana was up early again. She was getting a phone call. It was my daughter who called me. How she was had your to daughter? go somewhere. She, she's 22. And uh, she called me and told me it was a very childish, really, I mean, it was a voice of a kid. I said, Mama, you know, the war has started. I'm coming home. I still get upset when I remember her call, and uh, I thought that, yeah, guys, I, mean, I, I would never forgive you for this. And then for the fact that I had to call my mother, I don't remember ever actually crying on my mother's shoulder. And I called her probably with the same baby voice my daughter called me. And I started howling and uh, saying, Mama, uh, you know we're bombing Kiev. Don't listen, don't watch anything. Uh, I'll come as soon as I can. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. From The Economist, this is Next Year in Moscow. Episode 6. Remote Work. On the morning of February 24th, 2022, the editor-in-chief of TV Rain, Russia's last remaining independent news channel, went live on air. Over the previous weeks, Tikhon Zitko had been expressing doubt to viewers that Vladimir Putin would invade Ukraine. It seemed impossible to him, too ruinous to Russia's future. I remember my first words were that Vladimir Putin 
announced the beginning of the war. And that unfortunately, I was wrong. In the days that followed, Tihan got a call from a woman at the Roskomnadzor, Russia's media regulator. Journalists like to call Roskomnadzor the Ministry of Censorship. And she said, you understand how the situation is difficult now, and you understand that it's really important to spread only real information uh, during such tough times. And I was like, I absolutely agree with you. And uh, she said, okay, thank you. I think everything is going to be fine. And I thought, no, nothing is going to be, nothing was going to be fine. When TV Rain was founded in 2010, it branded itself the Optimistic Channel. It projected a bright vision for Russia that clashed with Putin's plans. Shortly before Putin's first incursion in Ukraine in 2014, the Kremlin leaned on TV providers to exclude the channel from their packages. TV Rain moved to a subscription model and then to YouTube. But now the full-scale invasion demanded full-scale measures. It would be absurd if the country is conducting an aggressive, unjustified war and a TV station with more than 20 million uh, viewers monthly report on it. In the first days of the war, the Kremlin imposed media laws that criminalized the very use of the word war and any reporting of the truth. There was an atmosphere of panic among Russian journalists. And I think that this atmosphere was made on purpose by some smart people in the Kremlin. On March 1st, TV Rain's website was blocked. Tihan heard rumors that police were on their way to search TV Rain's offices and begin a criminal case. And we went home and we had a Zoom with the colleagues and that was the moment when I decided that it is time to, to leave the country. Um, TV Rain's final broadcast from Russia was on March 3rd, 2022. Remaining staff gathered in the studio. Those who had already left appeared via video on screens. No to war, they said. Definitely no to war. The feed then cut to a familiar bit of footage, an old black-and-white performance of Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake. There were no tanks in the streets of Moscow, no official state of emergency, and no martial law. But the lesson of the failed coup in 91 had been learned by the former KGB man, who were now fully in control. Their hands were not shaking this time. There were to be no questions from bright young journalists in party dresses. For me, leaving Russia was a big moral trauma. Mikhail Fishman is an anchor on TV Rain. He left Russia around the same time as the rest of the team, 
about a week after the war started. He wondered whether and how he could keep working from abroad. And that wasn't just a technical issue. I didn't really understand if I can even start talking because I didn't understand who was I from now on. How does my voice sound? Do I have this right to address to people, to talk to them, to do the same thing as I did before? I'm outside and I'm, I'm not bearing these risks of living under tyranny. Do I have this right still to talk to those who are still there under that pressure? After a few months of self-doubt, Mikhail decided it was time to get back to work. I realized that I have my responsibility as a Russian citizen that this war started. I have to fix it. Russia is living inside this propaganda bubble, inside Putin's dystopian universe that he has been building for more than 20 years already. And if I can do something to try to break it, I have to do it. I have to bring the truth about this war back to Russia. By the summer of 2022, TV Rain was back. TV Rain is on the air. For 12 years, we remained the only independent news channel in Russia. Its journalists had established new operations from abroad in Tbilisi, Riga and Amsterdam. They broadcast shows in Russian and in English. On YouTube, the channel would give voice to anti-war Russians and beam the truth about Putin's war back into the country. Measuring public opinion is hard in a militarized dictatorship. But even in official polling, some 20% of Russians are opposed to the war. The real number is probably higher. Another 20 to 25% are totally possessed by nationalist fervor. They'd want the war to continue, even if Putin decided to stop it. But also there is a huge, the biggest group in between. Tichon believes that this group in the middle is in denial. Because it's impossible for them to admit that their country is committing terrible war crimes in Ukraine. The most important thing is to get these people from this group. Brought up in the tradition of Orwellian doublethink, the silent majority is perfectly capable of holding completely contradictory views and siding with whichever sounds louder. By silencing dissent and amplifying propaganda, Putin makes a minority feel like an overwhelming majority, while making anti-war people feel alone. And if Putin needs the country and the world to believe the war is popular, TV Rain needs to prove the opposite. Last December, we went to see Mikhail Fishman at one of TV Rain's new outposts in Amsterdam. He was back on air. Everything is different about me, about what I do, about what I think about myself, about what I think about my mission, about what I think I have to do, about my responsibility, about my identity. Misha was recording his weekly program when we visited. His show covered the latest in the war, blackouts in Odessa, bloody battles in Bakhmut. But it also had news from inside Russia. 
where an opposition politician called Ilya Yashin had just been sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. His crime was telling the truth about the Russian military's massacre of civilians in Butcher. The rule of my show is that I always have a guest from Ukraine and always someone from Russia. There are two parts of the same war, fought in the battlefields in Ukraine and in Russian courtrooms and jails. Misha looked exhausted when the recording finished. It had been a long week. The Russian state had just added him to a list of so-called foreign agents. Officially, it means that I am under some kind of foreign influence. So everyone has to be mm, aware of that. As of consequences, they not only label you as an outcast, as a pariah, as enemy of the state, but they also strip you of your rights as a citizen. We cannot teach, we cannot be elected, and some other rights, and it totally mirrors the first legislation that uh, Nazis uh, had introduced in early 1933 when they came to power regarding Jews. More than 600 public figures and organizations are now on the blacklist, nearly half of them added since the start of the war. As a foreign agent, Misha is required to preface any public utterance online, on air, and in print, in capital letters, with this exact words. This material, open bracket, information, close bracket, has been produced, distributed, and or sent by the foreign agent Mikhail Vladimirovich Fishman or concerns the activities of the foreign agent Mikhail Vladimirovich Fishman. Failed to do that a few times, and he could be held criminally liable, his assets in Russia seized, and a national warrant issued for his arrest. So I have to think about, will I or I won't put this disclaimer, uh, humiliative disclaimer, absurd, dystopian kind of words. I probably will, but I will have to think about it. On the December 1st edition of a program called Here and Now, TV Rain presenter Alexei Karistilov had about a minute of airtime to fill. He improvised. He promoted an email inbox the station had set up to collect stories of Russian conscripts deployed to the front. The stories were meant to expose Russian state callousness and lack of care for its own men. Karistilov said, we hope that we've been able to help many servicemen with their gear, for example, and basic necessities at the front because the accounts that we have published and that have been shared by their relatives are frankly horrifying. Viewers, many of them in Ukraine, did a double-take. Help Russian servicemen? With gear and basic necessities? What was he saying? That TV Rain was supplying Russian troops? The clip went viral online and produced a vicious reaction. When I came to the newsroom, I saw the faces of my colleagues and they were shocked. They were reading the comments and statements by different people, influencers, that we work for Kremlin. Katya Katrikadze is a TV Rain anchor who worked in the Regan newsroom. She spoke to us just a few days after Karistilov's comments on air. I don't know, maybe he was confused, maybe stressed. I don't know what was going on in his mind, but 
he said words that are not true. To the station's critics, particularly in Ukraine, but also among some of its closest allies, this clip revealed the true feelings of TV Rain's journalists. The argument went that they might not be Kremlin propagandists, but deep down, they were surely Russian imperialists. They had contempt for Ukraine and sympathy for Putin's war. This is precisely what Vladimir Putin likes everyone to believe, that he and his people are united behind Russia's empire, and that his is the only truth. TV Rain's editor-in-chief, Tihan, who is also Katya's husband, posted to his Telegram channel to clarify that the station had not helped and would never help the Russian army in any way. Karistilov himself posted to say he misspoke. But the damage was done. As a result, we are having right now existential problems at TV Rain. TV Rain had been airing through Europe with a Latvian broadcast license, a license that Latvia's media regulator was now threatening to cancel over the incident. Katya convened with TV Rain's leadership team. I was talking to my colleagues, trying to figure out what to do, what kind of statement we should make. The next day, Katya was due on air at 2 p.m. So it was uh, like 1.45 p.m. when we had finally decided that Alexei would be fired. В эфире недопустимы формулировки, которые могут зародить сомнения в нашей позиции. Поэтому In announcing her colleagues firing that day, Katya appeared to become emotional. This is an extremely difficult decision for us, she says, but TV Rain management considers it the only correct and possible one. The firing caused a rift in the newsroom, one that still hasn't fully healed. A few staff members quit in protest. <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, uh, I'm just getting millions of messages about that. Two kinds of messages. Mm cursing me because I'm a FSB agent and the second kind of messages is cursing because that we have fired our man that we have put him under the bus and that we are not a normal company anymore that we are traitors and we are not humans Two days after we spoke to Katya, the chairman of Latvia's media council announced that quote, in connection with threats to national security and public order TV Rain's license would be rescinded. Of course, they were not a threat to Latvia's security. But soon after, TV Rain's journalists would be kicked out of their studio space, and once again, they'd be looking abroad for a new base of operations. I'm exhausted, honestly. After TV Rain lost its license, Katja sent us this voice note. We are staying on air, we are keeping working, nothing has changed in terms of the plans of TV Rain. We are staying on YouTube, Russian audience and audience all around the world is watching. So we are going to be there for the viewers. The crisis, in some respect, was inevitable for the optimistic channel in the time of war. It forced a reckoning not just with Latvian authorities, but with themselves. Who were they now? Who was their audience? And what were they trying to achieve?
Hello, I'm Dan Rosenhack, the editor of The Economist Data Team, and I'd like to tell you about some of the work we've done on the war in Ukraine. This is the most documented war in history, but social media videos and military blogs paint only a partial picture. After a year of fighting, we wanted to come to some conclusions about the conflict as a whole based on comprehensive data. Using two satellite-based systems, we identified the locations of fighting and damage to buildings in every corner of Ukraine on every day of the war. We found that rather than being limited to a few big offensives and grinding battles, the war has devastated vast swathes of the country, reaching 14% of municipalities and damaging nearly half of the hardest-hit cities. Our conclusions are laid out in detail in an interactive map. If you already subscribe to The Economist, thank you. You make all this possible. Otherwise, for access to all our journalism and to join exclusive events with Arkady and others on our team, visit economist.com slash Moscow Offer. That's economist.com slash Moscow Offer. The link is in the notes for this podcast. A few months after TV Rain's trouble in Latvia, I attended a conference in Potsdam, Germany. Independent Russian journalists operating inside and outside Russia had gathered there to coordinate tactics in the battle for hearts and minds. I was nervous. The physical separation between those who had left and those who had stayed might have led to mutual resentment. But what I found was a sense of shared purpose. Far from being demoralized by Putin's media blackout, the journalists there seemed energized. And perhaps no one more so than Galina Timchenko. I want to fight not just for their attention and time. You know, the attention and time of audience is the currency of our market. But I am fighting now for their souls. Galina commands one of Russia's top media operations, Medusa. Medusa's story begins in 2014, along with Putin's war against Ukraine. At the time, Galina was the editor of another online outlet, Lenta.ru. But after the annexation of Crimea and just before Russia's first attack in Donbass, the Kremlin leaned on Lenta's owner, an oligarch called Alexander Mamut, to fire Galina. Staff resigned en masse in protest. Galina gathered her deputies and planned a new venture. I wasn't ready for compromises. I said, you know, guys, I want to build something like uh, when they cut off our head, I want to grow too. <laughs> and one of my guys said, oh, let's call it Medusa. I say, actually, you are talking about Hydra. <laughs> but Medusa is good. Unable to base such an operation in their homeland, they started looking abroad. A lawyer suggested that their best option was Latvia. In Riga, Latvia, we had the most vulnerable part of Medusa uh, headquarters and the development team. And our correspondents, our reporters, they worked from the ground. 
Over the following eight years, Medusa became essential reading for independent-minded Russians. But Galina's experience had taught her to prepare for the worst. Every three months, uh, me and my co-founder organized a meeting to create, to develop the disaster scenario. I'm a big fan of a book of Canadian astronaut Chris Hatfield. And he is an evangelist of the idea of negative thinking. His main thought was, if you are in the open space, you have to predict what next would kill you. In a five minutes, five days, five weeks, so on. By the spring of 2021, it was not just the build-up of troops on Ukraine's border that persuaded Galina that Putin was heading to war. It was the renewed offensive against the media in Russia. And I said, if I were Putin, and if I wanted to start the war, I do not need any independent voice. I need just one propaganda. So we started preparing for the war. Medusa emptied its Russian bank accounts and evacuated its staff to Riga and to Berlin. But that didn't mean the end of their on-the-ground reporting in Russia. When we started Medusa, we decided to make some trainings for journalists from Russian regions. And for summers, we organized summer school of journalism. And now we have almost 200 of freelancers inside Russia. Our freelancers, contributor writers, fixers inside Russia, they, all of them, now work on anonymous condition. And Medusa developed a new security protocol to protect those reporters. One journalist, one task. Please go and take a look. Please call. Please ask questions. So, and then we gather it like a mosaic. We call it proxy reporting. So you only give one task to a journalist. You only go and look. Yeah. yeah. The other writes. Yeah. The other makes a call. Yeah. It's really hard uh, to the authorities to follow them. Medusa assembles those individual stories into a big picture. And that picture is shaping perceptions and attitudes of the audience in Russia. And it doesn't spare its audience from the full horror. We try to say, come and see how the real war looks like. We do not blur uh, the uh, photos. We try to show the war from Ukrainian eyes. And actually, Ukraine, uh, you know, from the very beginning, banned Russian male journalists from entering the country. All the reporting, except one, was made by female journalists. This is the kind of reporting that Vladimir Putin categorically doesn't want Russians to see. When the war started, the Medusa website was blocked inside Russia. Traffic to the site dropped by about 40%. But they had prepared for that. They'd updated their app, which would remain on app stores. They had promoted their social media channels. And they had launched newsletters. And most importantly, they encouraged their readers to install VPNs, which would allow Russian internet users to access blocked websites. We had huge growth in such countries like Netherlands or France 
or even New Zealand. And we have numbers of downloading VPN services. 2.5 million users downloaded our VPN services. I could not imagine that 1 million people in Netherlands once in the morning wake up and said, let's read Meduza in Russian. So, no, so VPN, no, it's so VPN it's, services. VPN technology disguises a user's location so it looks as though they're accessing the internet from a different part of the world. Russia now has the highest use of VPNs in the world. Nearly half of young Russians have one. And for the benefit of older, less tech-savvy readers, Medusa reverted to ink and paper. It now publishes PDFs so the printouts can be handed out old-style. Now Galina is meeting with Silicon Valley tech experts as she thinks ahead to the next challenge, complete isolation of the Russian internet. Vladimir Putin's mission is to cut Russia off from the world. Her mission is to keep them connected. So the Kremlin is now targeting those who read Medusa. The company had been branded a foreign agent well before the war. And in January of 2023, the Kremlin upgraded its designation to undesirable, claiming it posed a threat to Russia's constitutional order and state security. Anyone who cooperates with Medusa or even posts a link to its content, potentially faces a prison sentence of up to six years. Even consuming that content in view of someone else can be dangerous. In one recent case, a man riding the Moscow Metro was arrested for looking at pictures on his phone that a fellow passenger reported as discrediting to the Russian army. But Galina is confident that her core audience is determined to keep reading. They are young enough and educated enough. They are technically driven. They live in the big cities. So more or less, I work and Medusa works for them. A pessimistic view is that Medusa is merely preaching to the converted. To Galina, that's missing the point. I have no intention to convert Putin's friends to the opposite. I'm not a dreamer, and I realize that I have almost or more than 20 million of people who are locked inside Russia, and I have to show them that they are not alone. And I have to provide them independent information in easiest way. And in a country where only about 60 million people are estimated to regularly consume news, the audience of independent media like Medusa is sizable. Cultivating this layer of Russian society is vital. First, it makes further mobilization more difficult, at least in large cities. And second, when the war does end, these people will have a big say in whether Russia can be peaceful for itself and others. Giving them a voice and consolidating them is something that can only be done by cooperation of those who are outside with those who stayed. Dmitry Muratov is the editor-in-chief of Novaya Gazeta, an iconic independent Russian newspaper founded with Mikhail Gorbachev's help in the early 1990s. Like Gorbachev, Muratov is now a Nobel Peace Prize winner. Over the years, six of Novaya Gazeta's journalists have been murdered, including Anna Politkovskaya. Muratov has remained in Russia.
Novaya Gazeta was shut down last year, but Dmitry told me that half the team is now outside Russia continuing their work. He talked to me on a video call from Moscow. We spoke in Russian, and I translated his answers for the benefit of my producer as we went along. So half the team is working remotely without censorship, far from the readers, and we operate under censorship in Russia, but in proximity to the readers. We are divided editorial people now. They're doing their bit. We're doing our bit. But we have a common burden. Putin hoped that by kicking journalists out, they'd lose their relevance. That might have been true in Soviet times. This time, the technology of remote work allows the emigres to continue to shape the thinking of those inside, to preserve the unity of a key constituency in any post-Putin world. People who've left, the media that left, need and deserve full support. They've gone through a very difficult transformation. You cannot expect or demand of them that overnight they will get everything right. They need to settle somewhere, and despite all the difficulties that, for example, TV Rain has had in Latvia, we need to be grateful both to TV Rain and to all the countries who've housed and looking after Russian journalists. What's happening in Russia is not going to end quickly. It's a long process, and it's going to be a long fight, and it's going to be a long journey. Um, it was a year of crisis. It was a year of uh, reconsidering everything that we've been doing. Katya from TV Rain was at the conference in Potsdam too, along with Stihan. By the time I saw them there, it felt like they had recovered from the Alexei Karistilov scandal a few months earlier. They had a much clearer sense of their mission, giving heart to the quiet resistance inside Russia. What we know is that we are not responsible for Ukraine. We are responsible for Russia. We need to do everything we can to talk to Russians. A year after the war began, TV Rain was at last finding its voice. What is important is that you show to your audience first, you are not alone. And when they uh, welcome each other in chat on YouTube and they see that uh, someone in Tambov is against the war and watches TV Rain just like you in Yekaterinburg do and you feel better. Second, there is a way out of this terrible situation. And we have to sh show each other and together think about how to find this 
this way out of this catastrophe. So I'm going to hand this microphone to Katia, who is an anchor, who is a news journalist. So she's going to ask you a question. Yeah, but what is the way out? You've said there is a way out, right? So of course, there is always, always there is a way out. Sadly, we, we, have, not, we have not found it yet, but <laughs> everything ends in, the, in this world. But what gives you optimism? Sorry, I'm just a supporting actor. I'm, I'm, yeah, a, yeah. I'm kind of producer. I'm just kind of Yeah, yeah. What, what gives you optimism, the, uh The understanding that people in Russia, they want uh, this country to change. Even uh, uh, official polls show us that 30 million people in Russia are against the war. We just have to find them and we just have to talk to each other. These are beautiful words from Tikhon Zetko. Yeah, now <laughs> Tikhon, since he's a presenter as well, um, he gets to ask you a question. There you are. Here's the microphone. You can get ask Katya a question. He doesn't I'm have just... questions, sorry. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I, why are you not being honest now with uh, our friend uh, Arkady when you were that saying that, that you are not optimistic? Because it's absolutely obvious that if you were not optimistic, you would not do what you are doing no, on this is a daily basis. No, I'm absolutely honest with our friend Arkady. Uh, what I'm saying is that, I mean, I have a lot of doubts, but I know that I will fight till the end. Uh, this is absolutely obvious. I will do what I can do because I need to do this. Next time, the struggle inside Russia. I would say that I meet many people inside the system that are not cruel, that are not fascist. The thing is that no one can imagine himself not obeying what his superior says. Next Year in Moscow is produced by Sam Colbert, Pete Norton and Ksenia Barakovska with help from Lika Kramer and Liba Liba Studios. Additional production and development is by Sandra Schmueli. Our sound design is by Wei Donglen, with original music by Darren Ang. Our executive producer is John Shields. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. This is The Economist.